the unseen. And I'm your host, Mike Cleland. On this episode, we will be talking with Christopher Knowles, who is a novelist, blogger, comic book artist, and synchromystic. And in this episode, we talk about his recent work of fiction, He Will Live Up in the Sky. And this is a mystery thrill ride about UFOs, renegade intelligence organizations, psychics, and our rampant conspiracy culture. And we also talk about how the plot of this book is mirroring today's headlines, and it is a little bit unsettling. Now, Chris also talks about his own real-life experiences and how these shaped the strangeness of this very complex fiction story. Chris has several other books that include Our Gods Wear Spandex and The Complete X-Files. And most importantly of all, his amazing blog is titled The Secret Sun, and he explores the synchronicities and undercurrents and strangeness that are all tangled up in our frenetic pop culture. This is a long interview, and I want to get right into it. This conversation was recorded Monday, August 3rd, 2020. Please enjoy. Chris, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Oh, I'm so glad to talk to you. It's been so long. It's been too long, really. Yeah, it's been ages. And and if we turn the clock back 11 years, you were my second podcast when I did the podcast series uh, back in 2009 when I started with that whole thing back way back when. So. Oh, it seems like a million years ago now, doesn't it? It's crazy. It was a million years ago. Yeah, yeah. So there's tons and tons and tons of overlapping stuff, which is sort of your your ken, I guess, is trying to make sense of these things that overlap. But I want to talk about your recent book, and I want to sort of, I don't know, compare and contrast that to current events if, and the genesis of that book, because I know it was a big project for you. It was a five-year project. It sure was. Yeah, it was... Um... <laughs> Had a very long gestation period, you know. I, I'd never written fiction before, uh, you know. I, I shot out like a cannon at the beginning, and then looked at what I had written and just said, "This is just so incredibly terrible. Nobody will want to read this." <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, I had a lot of downtime because I was working on other stuff, and then I was sick for a while, and you know, things would just kept getting in the way. But I think all these delays really helped the book because. I needed to, you know, put a little kind of living under my belt that would give me a better perspective on, you know, what I wanted to really write and what I really wanted to say. And, you know, before it was just all plot. And it was just one of these books that, you know, people who are sort of into this kind of stuff will write these. It's almost like an obligatory thing where you have to write a work of fiction. And it's almost always just like, oh, why did they write this? This is awful. you know. <laughs> and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to write a book that just really did the subject matter justice, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a it's a it's a 
it's a rough book. I mean, it's a tough book. I mean, there's, it's a grim book in a lot of ways, and it, it drags in so many, like you had a vacuum cleaner like that just was just collecting up seemingly every little nuanced little bit of conspiracy culture and UFO culture and, uh, you know, paranoid culture and, and just putting it into one book. So here, like, I'm going to ask you to do it because cause I, I would have a hard time doing it. Can you just give a, like a thumbnail summation of the book? Well, the thumbnail summation of the book is that I was looking at the period when um, the government, Congress had shut down the Stargate project. The, you know, the, I guess it was under the aegis of the army at that point, but it was the, you know, the official remote viewing project. But it was also at the same time, a lot of things that the military had been doing were being privatized. So I was like, well, why don't I do a story about a privatized remote viewing project? I mean, there were some, but, you know, I don't know how serious I would take them. Like like Ed Dames and Prudence Calabrese had some sort of thing going on. And, you know, a lot of people who were involved in, in Stargate and earlier projects had um, developed consultant positions and things like that. But I wanted to do like this was a real black bag uh, covert operation. And, um, you know, the, 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 the MacGuffin, I guess, the premise is that this group is assembled and they're tasked to find this um, rock singer who um, the government has been monitoring for a very long time. And, and you find out why. I don't want to spoil that, but you, you find out why the government's been monitoring this kid. And he but he disappears on stage. Uh, somebody, a gunman appears. And this is in the first chapter. You know, a gunman appears in the crowd and is about to shoot him and then he sort of vanishes in a flash of white light and um it goes on from there so i i originally had a lot more ufo kind of stuff but i, I gotta tell you something it's really hard to write stories about ufos um because the, the you know the great appeal of ufos is like the the unknown part you know the unknowable part and how do you really weave that into a, a cogent narrative it's very very difficult to do so I ended up taking out a lot of the UFO material and and really focusing more on you know the the, the paranormal stuff and the, the psychic stuff and and all the stuff that had a little bit more of a human context to it you know a little bit more of a human dimension and um, you know as these people are going on um, this this very Island of Misfit Toys kind of group that's been assembled to uh, do this work. They they stumble onto a much deeper and darker uh, network that um, has very big plans for the rest of the country and the rest of the world. So, um, you know, it's 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 a lot of you know a lot of the kitchen sink there. And you're right. I mean, there is a lot of darkness, but I, I put a lot of humor in it too. I, I want it to be very entertaining. I want it to be like a rocket ride, you know, a thrill ride rather than just sort of, um, you know, this grim slog. You, you know, it's funny, because when I read books, I usually see a movie in my mind, right? You know, like I like I remember having this discussion back in college. I went to film school and having this conversation, like, how did people dream before movies? Mm. Right, you know? You know, like, how did, what were they seeing? How, how did it play out in their mind before movies? And when I was reading your book, I, you know, I usually see a movie and I usually really think about like, wow, this kind of movie and this kind of production. And it really plays out in my head. And honestly, when I, when I was reading this, I saw a graphic novel, like the characters just had that kind of, that kind of, um, uh, heavy handed oomph, I guess that, that 
that fit more in a comic than in a movie in my own head as I was reading it, if that makes sense. Well, it's funny you should mention that because, you know, when I originally plotted the story out, I kind of did it storyboard style because I had been considering doing a graphic novel, but, you know, it just didn't want to be a graphic novel. It wanted to be an, a novel. And um, most of the, the plot points that I had developed for, you know, a graphic novel treatment, you know, I eventually discarded. Um, and and a graphic novel, I mean, just it would be mammoth to do that alone. I mean, you would have to work as a team, wouldn't you, to get some sort of graphic novel done? Or Yeah, I think so. Graphic novels are just brutal. Um, doing the work by yourself is brutal. I mean, I did a back in like 20 years ago, I did like a... Um, I think it was like a 24-page comic story by myself. I, I have it. I have it. Yeah, it took me three months to do. It was just unbearable. It's just so much work, and it's just so tedious. And, you know, it's really not very rewarding because I, I just – I think there's still a lot of resistance to, you know, the, the form for these kind of stories. Yeah, but that – it's funny. I mean, I just – knowing you and just knowing your your – you know, the stuff you love as far as comic books and stuff like that. I, I just, it, it played out like that. Here's a question. This is the one thing that just, I, I got to ask. And did you read a lot of hard boiled detective novels? Oh God. Yeah. Oh, so I, you and I are about the same age and I think we lived in New York city probably around the same time. I lived in New York between 81 and 91 in right in Manhattan when mere mortals could actually afford it, uh, or barely afford it. Let me put it that way. And there was like this culture of like kind of 20-somethings, and everyone had, like, a Jim Thompson book in their back pocket, or they'd have a Raymond Chandler book, you know, like, reading on the subway. And I'm not kidding. Like, there was a, it was a real thing for me and the sort of crew that I hung out with. And in those years, I, I you know, between, you know, 81 and 91, I read everything that Raymond Chandler ever wrote. Oh, yeah. Huge influence. I, I sense that. Yeah, I totally sense that. That so, And you did something which I kind of was like, at first I was like, wait a minute, is this fair? Can you do this? Where you were doing that kind of um, pulpy, hard-boiled dialogue, but with the, the plot that takes place in the 90s rather than present day. But you were doing it in kind of 90s jargon rather than 30s jargon. That would have been, you know, the, the nostalgia. Or when I guess I was never alive in the 30s. But that's sort of the charm of the, the books by Chandler. Just that dialogue and what people are wearing and, and you know, what drinks they order and things like that. And and so this book had that, but it was totally updated to the 90s. And, and I, I, at first I was like, whoa, whoa, like... And I remember the first Chandler book I read, I was like, whoa, this is too much. Like, like, but I really got into it like very early on in the book that, that just that packing all that stuff in there. Well, again, it's a huge influence. I mean, Chandler, uh, Elmore Leonard, Ed McBain, and uh, the earlier uh, Spencer novels by Robert B. Parker, um, just huge influence. Uh, I mean, there are other influences too. I mean, Really, the, the the genesis of this was inspired by a Vallis reread. I'd, I'd reread Vallis by Philip K. Dick, and just something struck a chord with me. And of course, it went in a totally different direction than Vallis, but that was kind of like the the impetus behind it. It's because Vallis sort of took that all that stuff that was floating around in the ether and this weird, uh, almost nameless, featureless subculture, and and put it all on on the page and you know another set of books that 
had a similar influence was um, the Illuminatus trilogy, you know, and sort of taking that early 70s post hippie fringy kind of Samizdat newsletter type of world and, and, and putting it all on the paper. Um, you know, that was something that I really wanted to do with just whatever kind of world that we've been living in, I guess. I don't know, whatever kind of subculture, nameless, featureless subculture that we operate in. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in a Philip K. Dick novel right now, all of us. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to set it in, I mean, you're from Boston and you just see a sense of place there. I guess there's like one of the things, the first things any like fiction writing teacher will say is just write what you know. And so that really had a sense of place to it. Well, it's it's ironic, too, because I originally said it in Seattle. And then I realized I don't know anything about Seattle. Like, I don't I literally don't know the first thing about Seattle. So <laughs> Seattle was kind of X'd off the list. <laughs> but I'd also, you know, I had life experience in the music industry in Boston since I was like born, basically, because my mother was a professional musician and I knew the nightclubs and that whole world and the music industry and, and the club scene in the, in the 80s that I was part of with, you know, with the bands that I was hanging out with and roadieing for. So, I mean, I just, I knew that world. So like, right, what you know, I, I wrote that world and I, I made it in the 90s because I wanted to um, pin down that sort of turning point, you know, like the, when things went from being pre-internet to like internet is completely ubiquitous and you can't escape it, you know, like pre panopticon, I guess you would say. Uh, it, nobody texted anyone else in the whole story, which was glorious. And no one like, I mean, then looking things up on the internet was always like the guy in the office, like said, I'm going to go in the other room and look this up on the internet kind of thing. And, and, uh, I'm trying to write a piece of fiction right now and I'm setting it in 2009. Um, and just cause that was before the, um, right at the dawn of the of the smartphone i just think smartphones and in, in literature almost don't jive i don't want a smartphone in my my literature if that makes sense oh i totally agree with you and i hate like one of the reasons why i i cannot watch most television and movies anymore is that anytime the writer comes to some sort of impasse in, in the plot you know they, they pull out the smartphones and i that's that just makes me insane and, you know, and one of the things that I really enjoyed doing, too, is like, you know, this is set up in New, in New Hampshire. Uh, mo most of it's set up in New Hampshire. And, like, they can't get a signal a lot, you know. Like, they, they go driving through the mountains and they lose their signal. And, and I, I just didn't want, like, that easy out, where, you know, whenever you face a dilemma in the story that you can just, you know, call somebody or – whatever i i just find i <laughs> oh i agree i agree yeah it's like it's uh, you know part of it is just as a like i'm i'm really good at trivia and nobody cares anymore right <laughs> like this that was like something to be proud of before you could you know everyone had their fingertips to their smartphone and could answer any question about any movie i i just feel like something's been lost as far as like abil people's ability to know trivia and to have you know kind of know facts and kind of process things without without going straight to google Oh, a lot of things have been lost. And and, and literature is less rich. Oh, well, that goes without saying. I mean, how many people even bother to read books anymore? You know, we're so distracted by all these other things. It's, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we've lost a lot. I, I was just, you know, I was on a, I was recording a podcast on Sunday, I believe, and we were talking about an old episode of Millennium. And, you know, the thing that I really pointed out, as I said, okay, this episode we were talking about was set in 1998, I believe. And it's like, nothing has really substantially, like, essentially changed. All we've had is, like, technology becoming more developed and, you know, faster and more ubiquitous. But it hasn't, I don't think it's improved our lives to any extent. And I, I, I think that the, the changes are, are almost entirely cosmetic. But at the same time, I think that, you know, they've done so much damage to our culture and so much damage to our society in so many different ways, you know. And uh, that's something I'm going to continue to explore. I'm, I'm working on the sequel now, and, and that's something that I want to get to. But I sort of hinted at it in, in a chapter in the book, but I'm going to you know, return to that. Hey, we have reached a, a, we've been through about the first 15 minutes and we are going to need to take our very first break for free listeners. You will hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on the unseen with my guest, Christopher Knowles, and we are talking about his new book. He will live up in the sky. Now, I contacted you years ago when I was working, I think this would have been around 2011, I was trying to do a graphic novel. And I was trying to cram all this um, sort of mythic stuff into the graphic novel. That later turned into a, uh, I'm, it's now way on the back burner, as a, a novella. I think it'll be a short little story. But I was getting super frustrated because I wanted to put all this UFO stuff. I wanted to put all this sort of symbolic stuff in there. And, I, and it really seemed forced. It wasn't working. I was trying to force it in there and it wasn't working. And you said something, I'm going to paraphrase from memory here. You told me, don't try to force the symbolic stuff in. Just write from your heart and those mythic things will happen naturally. Um, and did you find that in this book that things surprised you that showed up in the book? Um, I don't know if things surprised me per se, but it, what surprised me is like when particular plot points that I was exploring kind of showed up in the real world. <laughs> that, and that's my next couple of questions. Yeah. Yeah. Over the period of the writing of the book, you know, one of, you know, if, if you read the book, you'll see that, you know, this is about a, a, a rock group. And of course it's in Boston originally met, meant to be set in Seattle. Um, and I was very consciously modeling the, the band off of uh, Soundgarden. And of course what had happened in the middle of the writing of this book is that Chris Cornell had died uh, in May of 2017. And, um, uh, that was a, a very tumultuous year for me in a lot of ways. And that's sort of part of the real changing of the book from being like, just a, almost like an escapist adventure to, to being something a little deeper. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to make the book about is like people who are wounded, you know, and, and people who are drawn towards fringe, uh, topics in, in, you know, a lot of times have, uh, a lot of wounds that they're trying to heal. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as the headlines right now, I mean, the, the stuff with, um, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell is, is, you know, that's front and center in the, in the public psyche right now. And that though, though you don't address those kind of things directly in the book that, that, I can't, I can't help but see the similarities. 
Well, you're you're absolutely right. And you know, one of the main things was that Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested in New Hampshire. You know, <laughs> arrested pretty much in the vicinity of where the book is set. You know. And did you hear just a quick question? Because I can't remember. Was there an actual city that you named in the book where the where the office was? No, I I wanted to be sort of. Well, I originally said it. Uh, it was meant to be in Salem, which is very far south. It's pretty close to the border of Massachusetts. And then I just thought, eh, that's a little too well-traveled. I, I wanted it to be a little, you know, that the location that they're in is is really backwoods. You know, that this this organization, this cutout organization is, is setting up and they, they really don't want anybody to know where they are. You know, it turned out to be like Ghislaine Maxwell's story. And, you know, uh, I won't give you know too many spoilers away, but there was um, sort of a... F- storyline that hinges on a um you know a, an intelligence agency honey trap organization so that that will show up in the book i'm not gonna i don't want to ruin the surprise but oh yeah yeah and i'm not gonna do either because there's a lot of plot twists in this book yeah yeah well th- you know it's funny that's another thing that i really as the book revealed itself to me um <clears throat> i really wanted to have a lot of twists and turns um and that's the sort of thrill ride aspect of it you know i i wanted you know, people to constantly feel off balance because to me, like the world that these people are operating in would instill that, that feeling within you, that you're, you're in terra incognita, that things are happening and you don't understand it. And the other thing that I, I really made a point about with, you know, the two main characters who were driving most of the action, that they're just completely oblivious to everything. They have no concept of <laughs> UFOs or psychics or paranormal. I mean, they, they just are babes in the woods. They, they have no opinion on it. They don't even have any concept that it exists in anything besides science fiction, you know, and that was a lot of fun for me. You know, I, I really wanted to avoid X-File syndrome, you know? I know, because I, I know you're a huge, I mean, obviously, I, I'm not sure if the listeners know, well, and I'll tell them, you are a huge X-Files fan. And um, the two characters, uh, Porter and Darja, they, I was wondering, like, at the beginning, like, wait a minute, is this, are these stand-ins for, like, Fox and Dana? Like, are they, but, but they were, like, getting chewed out by their boss, basically saying, like, you know, don't go down that road, you know, like, they were, like, asking questions about the UFO stuff, and, and they weren't getting much help from anyone, <laughs> Yeah, that's well, that's, the, you know, again, I want them to be stand ins for the readers, you know, I yeah. want them to be like, I don't want to just appeal, to, you know, preach to the converted. I want people who aren't familiar with these topics to sort of just read this as, a, as an enjoyable story. You know, I, I don't want it to just be um, cult literature, you know, for, for the cultists, so to speak. So one of the things that was a lot of fun, you know, with both characters was just making them just so oblivious and not only oblivious, but like irritated and angry and resentful that they have to stick their nose on all these kind of topics. But one of the things that really revealed itself to me as the story proceeded was that, um, you know, they have no choice, you know, they're, they're sort of being controlled because they have nowhere else to go. And that's another thing that I really wanted to uh, to play up because one thing I can't stand. Oh my God! So you know, you're talking about how I was into a lot of Pulp Fiction. So when I was doing like advertising and, and storyboards and all this kind of stuff, I'd always have audiobooks on, right? And I 
fairly quickly worked my way through the good stuff. And then I was, you know, like James Patterson novels or something, just absolute garbage like that. And, uh, I always hated like the, the characters are also perfect, you know, like, Oh, she was a 4.0 at Harvard on a full ride and she runs 26 miles a morning and, you know, the, the best of the best. And oh, just like all that kind of stuff. I, it just drives me nuts because how can you possibly relate to these characters that are just so perfect and pristine? It's unbelievably frustrating and boring to me. Yeah, everyone was kind of broken in this story. Well, that's yeah, that's the whole point. Yeah. yeah. Not kind of broken, yeah. There was, and 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 some people you just you would parse out the information about each character little by little by little, and and uh, oh, just one thing I wanted to say. So so early on, and you you basically said this was going to be a remote viewing story. There wasn't that much remote viewing in the story. There was there was uh, they hinted at it a little bit, and then there was the one character I won't go into it. But one of the things that came up uh, when I was doing interviews. I interviewed Jim Mars years ago, and then this was later confirmed on a YouTube video with uh, uh, Jacques Vallée, and and both of them uh, said that the initial crew of military-trained remote viewers, all of them had what we would call direct UFO contact. All of them were abductees. Yeah, I, I actually I actually stole that from you at one point in the story. Oh, right on for me. I got. Us, uh, I was waiting. I actually, you know, the very first thing I did is I, because I, I, I read it on uh, on the Kindle thing, and I, I word searched the word owl, and and it didn't come up once. Uh, so thank God for that, because I'm a little bit like cautious now. I'm like, holy crap, the owl thing has gotten out of hand. So, um, but uh, yeah, no, I recognize that. I was because I was wondering, you know, where that was going. Like who in the plot, you know, would would later be revealed to have these experiences. So so I was I was really drawn in. Well, I wanted UFOs in the story to be um, absolutely unknowable, you know, that they, they, they're they seen, they have interactions with characters in the book, their presence, and, and in some ways they're an integral part of the story. But I, I don't, I didn't want to go any further than that. It's like, okay, these things are real and they're there, but we have absolutely no contact with them. We, we have no influence over them. This is, you know, a, a very aloof phenomenon that is forever unknowable. But, you know, as, as you see in the story that it's, you know, they, the, the UFOs, whatever they are and however they work, interact, you know, in, in a crucial way with a lot of the characters. Right. But I didn't want them to be anything that you could put your finger on. You know, I, I to me, they're much more disturbing and dramatic when you, you can't identify them in any way. You can't I identify what's happening, what's behind it, but it's there. And, it, and in some ways it has control over you. You know, exactly. Yes. Hey, we are at the half hour mark. We're going to be taking our very quick second break for free listeners. You will hear a few commercials for paying members. We will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am talking with my friend Christopher Knowles about his new book, He Will Live Up in the Sky. And Chris, one question I wanted to ask, did you make 
up like a big chart, like a big uh, like a big bulletin board with post-it notes and thumbtacks and cards and little strings connecting all the things to to keep yourself sane while trying to to work through all this stuff. I absolutely did. <laughs> did you take a picture of it? No, I, I did not. <laughs> um, but I, I had a huge stack of uh, index cards. And and a and bunch of magic markers that I got at the dollar store that I, I burned through very quickly and just really did that. And I'll tell you something, I'm really grateful that I did that because, you know, in a story as complex as this, you know, with the several different acts sort of unfolding, you really have to have an overview. Um, otherwise, it just falls apart. And I'll tell you something else. I mean, one of the things that was really tough is that I was, you know, as the story was revealing itself more to me, I was constantly writing new scenes. And one of the big challenges that I had was, you know, where, where do these scenes go? <laughs> you know? I mean, how do I put these scenes in order? And, um, you know, just for your listeners and your fans out there, um, there is a uh, character in the book that is, not unlike uh, a Mike Cleland type, so I'm just going to... Oh, wait a minute. Which one? Who was he? I just finished it. Uh, Mac Cullen. Oh, I was thinking, I was wondering that because I was thinking Mac Tony's. Okay, 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 got it. So, well, that was, um, there, there was definitely, there's definitely like, uh, uh, you know, characters are never direct analogs unless you're t trying to attack somebody, right? <laughs> They're always um, composites. And uh, there was definitely a lot of Mac Tonys in that character. And, you know, not a little Mike Cleland. I'll just say that. Um, but uh, sort of drawing back, you know, you were talking about that uh, era when Mac had published the uh, Crypto Terrestrials, or I guess posthumously. Yeah, he was already, he had already passed, yeah. Yeah, and you had done the uh, cartooning, all those great cartoons for it. And that was definitely something in my mind and definitely thinking about that, uh, you know, influenced the character that um, at, it, it, at first was just sort of an incidental character that was just there for flavor and just to add a little bit of exposition. And then, again, not trying to give away too many spoilers, but uh, that that composite character shows up again in, in a very crucial manner later on in the story. So there you go. Right on. Hey, let's let's jump to present day headlines and New Hampshire. Now, for folks who have never looked at your blog, you have this way of like making these connections that that is almost like a synchronistic. I guess the, the correct word would be synchromysticism. You like the synchromystic in you is like parsing out these these real life elements and their connections and how they connect in in um almost magical means you know like I, I if you if you tried to uncover some conspiracy that made it all happen you'd go insane but if if you take two steps back and think like how is reality actually working that these things play out like they do and i'm thinking in particular the connection between um where glenn maxwell was caught uh i think it's the betty and barney hill site where they were abducted and where alistair crowley uh, spent a summer, I think in the 1920s. 1916, actually. 1916 in New Hampshire. Yeah. 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 That was uh, very strange. Um, <clears throat> and of course, that 
there's the connection between Ghislaine Maxwell and Jack Parsons because her um, sister is married to the son of uh, Jack Parsons' former business partner, the guy who started Jet Propulsion Laboratories with him, uh, which was just absolutely mind-boggling. And also considering that, you know, when you align those those sites, you know, at, at the northern tip, you have Indian Head Lake with the, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, and then you have about 35 minutes down the highway is uh, Hebron, where Alistair Crowley had summered. And then another 35, 40 minutes down the highway is where Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. And then if you just keep going south for a couple hours, you're going to get down to uh, Longmeadow, Massachusetts, where um, Jack Parsons' family was living just before they moved to Los Angeles to start again. And uh, the, the, those four sites are like, it almost seems to me that that's like a ley line, that this, they're aligned so perfectly that it's got to be some sort of earth energy or ley line. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's so hard to say because I, I really, I feel very strongly that, um, you know, consensus reality as we once understood it is, is dissolving and becoming unmoored. And, um, Oh, geez. You know, I, I just recently heard a, a quote and, and I'm, I'm going to totally forget who, who said it, but somebody had said something to the, the effect that consensus reality is, is, is just something that we, you know, or it only exists because we, we tell each other it does, you know, like it, it, consensus reality is, is this reductive form of, of a greater reality that you know, it's something that we can all kind of agree on. It's like the lowest common denominator of reality. And with the gatekeepers uh, losing control in the media and in politics and up and down the line, you have, um, you know, that that whole concept of reality becoming unmoored. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in is, you know, does that affect the flow of reality if we don't observe it, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a, a like a subatomic particle. Does it, does it react differently when we observe it or not? You know, does it, when a tree falls in the woods, does it, does it make a sound? Um, you know, all these kind of cliches. And I, I really start to wonder if, um, you know, reality has be, just become fungible and it changes according to how we perceive it. And there is a scene in the book you know, that I don't really delineate that per se, but there's a, there's a major set piece within the story that's very much about, you know, reality just becoming unglued from its moorings and, and how that, you know, and how we perceive that and, and how we operate within that. Yeah. Actually, there's, there's a lot of, that. <laughs> I was just saying this one set piece is no, there's actually, you know, quite a few of that. So when I was dealing with the paranormal material, I really wanted to explore, uh, I guess at the time that I, I started writing the book, I was really influenced by George Hansen's work. Right. And, uh, but I wanted to take that to several different levels. And I was also really influenced by John Keel as well. So I, I really wanted to treat the paranormal, not in the way that you would see in an X-Files show or, or any other, you know, supernatural or any of these other kind of supernatural detective shows. I want it to be seen as something that the reality 
and the actual reality, you know, like the testable reality changes according to who's perceiving it. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, there were some conversations where you're getting in the head of, of both Porter and Darsha, and they were they were having different kind of reactions to what was going on, you know, specifically when they were like meeting people and they're like, is this person crazy? Is this person telling the truth? Wait a minute, this matches with this. And they were both kind of going through that process, you know, independently in their in the internal dialogue in their head. And and I recognize that. Yeah, well, again, that's something. I, there's a lot of kind of internal dialogues that aren't necessarily, you know. It's I, I one thing that I did, and um, I guess a couple people got confused by it, but I think most people understood where I was going with it. But I was mixing and I was weaving in internal dialogue into a third-person narrative. So basically, you know, particular chapters, if somebody's sort of the driving engine in that chapter if somebody's driving most of the action you're going to be reading the story through their lens you know you're going to be you know their voice is going to sort of affect the narration and that's something i got uh that's like an ed mcbain thing that he would toy with he never really explored it to the, the extent that i did but uh i i really you know i i had a lot of fun with that Just, oh it um, worked perfectly yeah i was drawn right in yeah Oh, like thank I didn't, you. didn't have any problem jumping from character to character and you know it was pretty you were very clear yeah um hey did you have like movie stars or anything like that did you have an image of who was going to be on the you know who was who was going to be the characters in your head like what they looked like and such only one only one uh, 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 george kennedy oh no oh <laughs> no uh, no that the, uh, the 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 ufo debunker yeah you, you said you oh, called him george kennedy okay, so, so he looked like a grumpy one. george kennedy yeah well, I always thought that Phil Class looked like um, Joyce Kennedy with hemorrhoids. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, again, that character is not exactly Phil Class, but, you know, I wanted to, to um, play with that type. You know, that kind of, um, you know, we look back on those those kind of people, you know, Phil Class, the best known of them, and you're just like, oh. <clears throat> what an obvious intelligence agent, disinformation agent that guy was, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's so blatant in, in retrospect. You know, we were a little bit more naive at that point in time, but you can kind of really just look back in that and just laugh, you know? And like, how did this guy who is uh, allegedly an editor on some specialist magazine have the money to fly over all over the country, all over the world, really, anytime some UFO controversy welled up, you know, it's just, it didn't make any sense. And, and, you know, if you look at it um, critically, but um, Darja, um, you know, she's not based on her, you know, other than her, her looks. Um, there's an actress named uh, Dana Wheeler Nicholson. Uh, and she, you know, she was like sort of my physical model for um, for Darja. So if you look at pictures of her when she's younger, like she was in the, um, the I guess the first Fletch movie. She was on the X-Files. She was in she was in a bunch of things. And she was, um, you know, I just thought she had an interesting look because, you know, she was very blonde, but she had almost like sort of a an Asian look to her as well. And uh, I'm going to go back to that map in uh, New Hampshire and putting that line on the map. Mm -hmm. I'm asking this for very personal reasons. Like, how did you come to put the line on the map? Like, what was your inspiration to say, wow, now I got to get a map out and, and put this, put a line on it? Because I do that with everything, really. And and I do too. So that's what I'm asking. And, and do you now? Here, yeah. 
in advance, do you, like for me, like in advance, like I do it all the time and most of the time I, I come up with nothing, but there are times when I know full well in advance, like a gut psychic knowing that, wow, this is, I'm just about to connect to something that's going to blow my mind. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've been doing this for ages, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, it was a real obsession for me for a long time. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, because maps are entirely just fictitious, right? They're just imaginary. You know, we just, we just put a, put these names and these borders and all these kind of associations on natural features, you know, and even putting down roads, right? And the act of putting down road is, is, is an artificial imposition on, on nature. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. So, it's it's something that if you do a lot of work with it, it it does. It, and this is where I start to wonder if um, reality just becomes unmoored and is a lot. You know, it's much more of like a you know quantum process than you, than you might think. Because what you know, one of the, the the rules that I have with with synchromysticism, you know, doing my synchromystic work is like always be precise, never fudge. You know, never, you know, it's not horseshoes, right? You, you want to be on the dot. And if it's not on the dot, don't worry about it. Just move on to something else, you know. And one of the reasons that I sort of stumbled upon this, because I remember reading, um, you know, down it. I remember reading like King Kill 33 and everything was like, oh, it's near and it's like this and like, oh, it's a couple days before, you know, everything was just like approximate and it just drives me crazy. And I, I find that if, you do two things like be precise in your synchromistic work. Don't try to fudge things and don't go for like, that's good enough. And second of all, if you, if you're looking through things that, like a particular mythological or cultural or religious context, you know, just stick to one, you know, because one thing, another thing that drives me crazy that some people do and this is more like people in the occult realm is they just they grab from everything, you know, and you can always find something, you know, you, you know, if you can't find it in like, I don't know, like Greco Roman mystery religion, you can find it in Hinduism or you can find it in Inuit, you know, animism or something. And, and it just drives me crazy. It's like focus and be precise. And then what, what's going to happen and, you know, speaking to what you're, you're talking about with the maps is that, um, you know, reality will yield. I know that sounds completely delusional in some ways. No, not to me. You know, not in the new reality, <laughs> not in the new unmoored uh, post-consensus reality. Uh, so again, I mean, just like focus and limit your focus and you will be, you know, it's, it's paradoxical, but your, um, your results will improve tremendously. And I'm thinking of the synchromysticism kind of like there was kind of this chapter. It's died down greatly, probably around between about 2009, 2011. There was this like upswing of people just kind of doing this mix and match stuff online where they would just start putting all kinds of images side by side and just you'd scroll and scroll and scroll. And it was cheating, I guess, you know, in a lot of ways. And um and you've been really good at not cheating, I guess, you know what I mean? Just not trying to you know force the puzzle pieces together when they really don't click together and when you do you say like you know there's comes a point when sometimes you say well you know isn't that interesting and and then 
as opposed to like, oh my gosh, this is the the smoking gun. And and that map stuff is was it really strikes me to because I've done it many times and it's blown my mind. And I'm almost scared of doing it. You know, like I'm really cautious when I do it because it it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Like I don't I don't like the fact that my I don't want to say that I'm conjuring it up. But reality has conjured it up, waiting for me to decipher it in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. But I don't even think like that anymore. You know, I'm just so focused on just like, what are the results? You know, what's the bottom line? How, how do the numbers add up? And, you know, this is like when I talk about just discarding a need for some materialistic science to define it, um, because you know, one thing that I, I like to say is that when you try to combine um, mysticism and science, you just end up with bad mysticism and bad science. The, the two do not complement each other. And I think one of the problems with like that whole boomer new age cohort was just this yearning need to justify things through some sort of physical, physics, science. And I just, it just, if there is a science behind all this, it's something that I don't even think we could wrap our heads around. So why even bother? Just focus on the work and focus on the results, you know? Uh, don't try to, you know, particularly if you're not an actual scientist, you know? Um, don't just, don't even bother with it anymore. Just go with the work and go with the results and go, you know, connect the dots and don't worry about if it makes sense some sort of rational sense anymore because I mean who who even bothers to try to make any sense of anything anymore everybody just goes on you know their their personal whims and needs in, in some regards so you know why be the only one trying to uh, justify your interest through uh, you know really what amounts to pseudoscience there was a um I wrote an essay, which was originally a blog post, which was extremely popular. It really surprised me. And it was called The Death of Jessica Redfield. And it was published on uh, in July of 2012. And it was about the um, shooting at the movie theater in Aurora, which I guess our mutual friend, I haven't talked to him in ages, but Bruce Rux was in the uh, author, Bruce Rux, who's written, um, I can't remember, what was the movie book he wrote? Uh, Hollywood versus the Aliens. Yeah which is a totally fun book. And, but he was in the theater next to it. So here's a guy like researching conspiracies. He's in the theater next to this event and he comes down. There's no conspiracy that took place there. But this woman, Jessica Redfield, she was a sports reporter. She had, uh, her real name was Jessica Gwaine and she had bright red hair. So her TV name when she was doing uh, sports reporting for Fox News in Denver was Jessica Redfield. And she was killed, shot and killed that night in the theater. Uh, and I think it was a month before, a little over a month before, she was in Toronto and there was, a, there was a shooting in a mall at a food court. And she was in the food court and she got a real sickening feeling in the pit of her stomach and she kind of ran outside. And then as soon as she got outside, she heard the guns gun firing. And so like a mass shooting that she was at, she was present at, and she got a feeling in her stomach. She left, she wrote a blog post on it and she had a blog with two posts on it. And this was one of them. And, and every like, um, mainstream news reporter that covered this event pointed to this blog at how eerie it was, like how strange it was that she would have this premonition. And, and if you dig into it a little more, there was, a, um, 
just a few days before the event, the shooting, she was at a like a tomato fight. They had like an organized tomato fight where people threw rotten tomatoes at each other, and and um, and she put pictures on Twitter, and these are still up. And it is it is impossible to look at these pictures. I mean, basically, she's she and all her friends are standing around, all splattered with bright red tomato. Like she's got a white shirt on, she's splattered with blood. She looks totally disgusted. She she hated it. She said that all the the uh, tomatoes were damp and rotten and and and. Like, people were throwing up. The smell was so bad. And, like, some people could argue that, like, oh, this is a big conspiracy. Like, she was, like, some sort of Illuminati, you know, sacrifice or something like that. And I and I have to take a bunch of steps back. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm sensing that reality, like, wants to organize itself in these, these ways where highly charged human events, like Aurora, like Jeffrey Epstein, like these, uh, will produce these type of this type of synchronistic weirdness and and i mean hers is a terribly sad story as is the all the horrible stuff that went down around you know the victims of jeffrey epstein so these highly charged human events like are like a like a magnet for these kinds of synchronicities in from from what i'm seeing in my own research oh i totally agree with you and you know 2000 years ago that was pretty much understood um 2000 years ago in the like in the Roman Empire people would agree with that people would understand that you know if i remember like um reading you know somebody you know that if a roman general tripped in the doorway before a battle campaign he would call the campaign off you know what i mean uh, that they it was you know you can sort of go a little overboard you know and, and sort of lapse into superstition right but uh, i think that Reality has, has always worked that way. And what happened is that we reached the Enlightenment, which was really a reaction to a, a whole century or more of, of really bloody and horrible, brutal religious war in Europe. And the Enlightenment, again, was sort of like, well, let's get to the lowest common denominator, you know, let's get to the material reality and the reductionist, naturalistic material reality. Let's just focus on this and let's just reorganize all of society based on the, the lowest common denominator, because all this other stuff is so subjective and unfixed that it just leads to, you know, the state almost of a, a psychosis. So they thought. And I think, you know, when you talk about Jessica Redfield, I'm looking at your blog post right now. Um, it, it, this almost reminds me of like um, that those Final Destination movies, you know, it seems to me that like in a strange way that, you know, she was supposed to check out at that shooting in, in Montreal or Toronto, I'm sorry. And she didn't. And, you know, she sort of cheated the reaper. You know, she was tagged. And again, I mean, this might sound insensitive to a lot of people. And it, it certainly sounds very super, supernatural and, and superstitious. And I'm just using this as like an allegory. I'm, I'm not exact, you know, I'm not trying to claim, you know, that I, I know that the Grim Reaper's thought process. But that's just how it seems to me that like she was supposed to check out at that point in time and then 
the Reaper caught up with her. And, you know, we've heard these stories before, and it seems to me we've heard a number of these in the past few years uh, as well, you know? And I, I think when you talk about the conspiratorial, I think the conspiratorial aspect of this is, is people who understand that this is how reality works and are always trying to manipulate that. So when you talk about magic, you know, really magic in its fundamental form is, is trying to manipulate what we would call synchronicity. It's, it's trying to manipulate things in such a way that you gain some sort of benefit from it. You gain some sort of magic power or material or personal um, reward through manipulating the way this stuff actually works. And, and I've, I've done it myself. I mean, I've done it myself. I feel like the owl book, the first owl book in a way was, I was so hyper-focused about owls for like five years and really, really just threw myself into it. And just, so I was in, stuck in this tape loop trying to solve this mystery of this owl stuff. And, and the universe was reflecting it right back at me. And, and in doing so, like stories would end up in my lap in the most magical ways. So that like, it's incorrect to say that that book was channeled. It was not. I was hard work and I typed all the words myself and everything. It was all. But like the stories landed in my lap in what felt like magical ways. And 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 I talked to um, a husband and wife author team. They wrote some they've written several books with synchronicity right in the cover. Robin Trish McGregor. And I told them that and they they've written a lot of books and they kind of said, yeah, that's how the best books feel like they write themselves in that way. So they were at peace with it. And it, for me, it, would, it shook me up. It, was, it kind of freaked me out. It, it is really kind of unsettling when you come into contact with it. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm going to explore a little more deeply in, in the next book is, um, you know, that I've, I've really come, come around to an understanding uh, of the paranormal that might seem a little grim to some people, but it's, I think it's sort of, sort of in the line of like where John Keel ended up. And, and that's that, um, you know, the paranormal to me is essentially phenomena that kicks up, that wells up around death and either anticipates death or, uh, is some sort of running commentary during or after, uh, death. And this is something that I've had, um, experience with uh in the past few years and strangely enough i mean that that was another thing that really changed the whole tenor of the book is you know i had you know i had to realize that the paranormal is not a game it's not um a hobby and you know when when real paranormal things happen it's almost always connected to death and one of the things that i find very troubling with people who um make it a hobby and kind of like uh, almost like a pastime is that you are poking your nose around things that um, can get very dark and can exert power of you that, that you would never in a million years imagine that they could. You know, I think like somebody like Lauren Coleman uh, understands this as well. I, you know, maybe when you get get to be a little older, or you, you know, you've had a little bit more experience under your belt, you do tend to do tend to see that. So, um, you know, the paranormal is not something that I seek out in any way, shape, or form anymore because, um, I guess I was chastened, you might say. You know, I mean, some might argue that synchronicism itself is is a, is a form of the paranormal, and and maybe it is, but. Um, you know, I'm talking about, you know, the things that 
ghosts and UFOs and, and stuff like that. I mean, um, it tends to well up during times of, uh, of crisis and tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Highly charged human events. Yeah. Highly. That's the term I use, like highly charged human events. Like if someone's in a crisis, boy, this stuff is going to happen. That's when the poltergeist stuff happens in the house and, you know, kids going through puberty. That's like, that's when things go haywire in the house. And I mean, the owl is representative of death, symbolic of death and symbolic of the UFO. I mean, to, for me anyway, it is. And, and, um, for other people too, I guess. But so I agree that like, you got to be really careful going down this road. One, if nothing else, like the subject itself can prove toxic in, in the way people can get so obsessed about it. Well, that's the thing that I really, you know, I get very concerned when I see things like Hellier, you know, and it just seems to me that there's a very cavalier attitude about just sort of placing yourself in, in, charged situations and in charge locations. And again, it, you know, getting back to this whole Jessica Redfield thing, I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tragic story and it does have, you know, again, it has that, that sort of final destination aspect to it. You know, uh, I, I missed you the last time, but I'll get to the next time, that kind of deal. And everyone recognized it. I mean, that was right in the, like you couldn't, help but be unsettled by the foreshadowing of that and and just the the driest newspaper reporters were were saying as much like right when it happened well even the name like redfield you know um it's like red blood oh yeah oh yeah you know blood spilled on the field field of battle i mean and i guess you had written here that her jessica the name jessica is derived from yishka which is a Hebrew word meaning foresight. So there <laughs> you go. And, you know, this stuff is going to be happening more and more often. And people are going to be trying to manipulate it and, and capitalize on it as well as, you know, this as it does well up, as, as it does appear and becomes more and more obvious to people. And I, and I just, I really have to just advise extraordinary caution uh I, I don't know what kind of banishing spells or whatever you know that uh dana uh newkirk is is doing and i don't know how effective they are but boy i just um don't try this at home you know really yeah. I, I think that uh, it's it's paranormal is a very fascinating topic to, to to watch from a distance but i i, I can't think of too many um examples of people who are who spent a, a long time researching the field that, that didn't suffer some personal tragedy or observed personal tragedy in some ways that, that um, really colored their, their outlook on it. I'm just thinking of the, uh, the exorcist character in the movie, the exorcist or William Peter Blatty's book. Um, you know, they, they very clearly say, you know, that he had this, something went down in Africa and it nearly killed him. You know, like he got so sucked dry by, by his role as a as an exorcist for the Catholic Church, I mean that's a very extreme example. It's fiction, but I suspect that plays out in real life. I suspect that William Peter Blatty, like you know, used that or heard something in real life and and fit that into the book because that's the feel it has. You know, like I've been to UFO conferences and there's some people who are freaking wrung dry because they've 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 chased their tails so much. Well, that's the whole thing is that. It, 
I used to use the term, and I know I've used the term on your show, the elusive companions. And the, elus- the elusiveness is, I think, a, a real central part of the phenomenon. So we have this uh, To the Stars Academy thing, and we have all this stuff going on with the Navy and the ATIP program. And essentially what looks to be like a soft disclosure process underway. Now, it's fascinating to me to see how underwhelmed, you know, the general public is by this. And I think a lot of there are two things at work. First of all, you know, it's not nearly as fun when you can't accuse the government of covering it up. (laughs) You know, I mean, when they say, okay, yeah, it's true. It's just, it's, it takes a lot of the... Uh, oh, you need an when, enemy. You need, like, you, you got to get worked up. You got to be able to point a finger at someone and be mad. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it takes the wind out of your sails. But um, I, I think that most people these days, or at least a majority, would say, yeah, UFOs are real and they're out there all the time, but there's just nothing that we can do about it. it we can't change the course of our interaction, you know, on a societal scale with this phenomenon. And, and again, like you said, I mean, people just end up exhausted because it's a never ending chase. You know, it's, it's the, the greyhound chasing the metal rabbit around the, the, the track forever in some ways. And you've got to, at some point you have to take that, research or that interest and put in a different kind of context because if if you just stay in like just chasing that rabbit forever it will um like you said it will it will just suck you dry you gotta be very very careful i achieved a remarkable level of peace at a certain point probably around 2011 12 when i realized like i am never going to solve this i am not going to solve this and i have to be at peace with that i have to be at peace with the mystery i have to be at peace with like i like i'm not getting very good answers but i can ask better questions and and there's very something very seductive about a mystery i mean you you know you wrote a mystery book you know you wrote a mystery novel and there's very very seductive there's a reason why we love mystery stories they draw you in and in many ways, you know, a lot of stories, you know, hardball detective stories, like it doesn't matter who who the villain was or who did it, right? It just it's the it's the it's the it's the roller coaster ride that we enjoy is trying to solve the mystery. You know, once it's solved, then then the fun is over. Yeah, well, the the questions are always more interesting than the answers, right? And that's and that's another reason why I'm saying if you dispense with this need to impose some kind of quasi pseudoscientific rationale on any kind of paranormal or woo and you don't really hear that term too often anymore but any kind of paranormal activity or phenomenon if you just don't, don't even try to impose your limited rationale on something that could very well be uh, maybe it is has a scientific basis, but it might be a science that just our brains can't even, you know, acknowledge existing. You know, maybe it's something that it's it's it is on this other dimensional level that these things are occurring, 
And since we're in this operating in this third dimensional level, like we, we can't even see it, you know, we can't even wrap our heads around it. We're just getting these little glimpses of these things that happen. And, and, you know, like with the UFO phenomenon, how synchronicity seems to inject itself into people who have sightings and experiences and, and, and on and on and on, you know, you've got to really, um, accept that you know you're the passenger not the driver and you never will be the driver I, I i really honestly believe that you know i really believe that you will never be the driver so just learn to enjoy the ride you know learn to enjoy the experience and don't try to control it you know because I, I think a lot of ways when you're trying to rationalize something or you're trying to describe it or you're trying to reduce it scientifically and on and on what you're really trying to do is control it and it, you end up with a very boring pursuit i think because it, if it's something that that you can control then it, it really isn't very interesting you know like the whole groucho thing i would not i wouldn't belong to any club that would have me as a member right it's like if you can control the or explain this, the the UFO phenomenon, then then it's just any other kind of phenomenon. You know, it's no different than an airplane or a train or a car or a boat. It's just another means of conveyance that you know you think you can explain in, in a nuts and bolts fashion. And, and you know, one of the, you know two of the um, my real you know in the process of writing this book, I, I had two of the most solid and documentable UFO experiences of my life. You know, I mean, maybe even the first, I mean, I, I, things I've gotten glimpses of or seen out of the corner of my eye and so on and so forth. But that was, you know, that wasn't really much to write home about, but, um, and one of them was in New Hampshire, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. The first, the first real, um, just like, oh my God, I'm living in a different reality now. Um, was when we were, we were going up to visit my mother and it was my grandmother's 100th birthday and we're coming up uh, Route route 93 and about to cross over. And actually, I think we had crossed over uh, at the bridge there. And we'd seen this, uh, like this kind of Cessna or Piper Cub, you know, just a sort of prop plane coming up out of Manchester Airport. And there were these two large orange balls that were sort of just like it looked to me you know from my vantage point i mean it was a few hundred feet in the, in the air but it was it was very low comparatively it looked like they were trying to make the plane crash and uh it was uh, it was unsettling and these objects have been filmed in that same area i mean people have recorded these things and you, you can go on youtube and, and find like orange orbs new hampshire that you know that they're seen they're, they're they're known they're recorded you know it's a it's a reality and um and also my son had had the the sighting at the golf club you know he and his friends um had seen these orbs appear i think there were three over the golf club there and that was right around the same time and then uh in 2017 i think it was uh february 2017 i was and you know, boy talk about synchronicity so i i I just watched the movie Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah, that. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. So I was thinking about like, you know, he's in like, I guess he's in like Monterey, that kind of area. Uh, you know, that that 
coastal region between Los Angeles and San Francisco. And I was thinking, you know, well, what's, you know, we know about Big Sur and, you know, there's always been sightings in that area. Like what, what is so special about that area that would, you know, have this guy recording, filming thousands of orbs and other kind of objects in the sky. And, you know, I'm taking my dog out and it's after midnight and I look up in the air and it looks like there's a, you know, a fairly large airplane that's fairly low that comes out of the clouds. And then it just stops. Like it just stops. And I'm like, okay, um, airplanes don't stop. <laughs> they don't just stop in the middle of the sky and, and sit there. And uh, when I looked at it more uh, closely, I realized that it was, uh, you know, that classic Chevron shaped uh, UFO. And, uh, you know, we, my, I called my wife out and we took some pictures of it. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the joke is like, um, oh, quick, there's a UFO, quick, get the worst camera you can find. And what people really do is just get the camera that they have without a telephoto lens because it's very difficult to take something in the night sky, take a good picture of something in the night sky. It's it's close to impossible. But, you know, my wife had gotten some good shots and everything. And uh, we watched it for, for quite a long time. And it was, you know, it was very, very bright and it was very low. And it was then it started making like weird lateral motions, you know, straight up, straight back you know, these weird kind of almost like it was on a, um, like some sort of pole or something, you know, it was, it was in a fixed, uh, fixed point in space that it could only move in these, these motions. And, you know, finally we got bored of it <laughs> after, you know, after about 15 minutes, you know, my, my daughter came out, she'd been sleeping and she saw it. And, um, you know, but that sort of like that almost like cured me of my UFO fixation because afterwards I just like, I don't know. I just kind of got a feeling like I don't I don't think I like that thing. You know, I, I, yeah. I don't think I like that. Like, why is it there? Why is it doing behaving? Why does it look so completely and, and totally um, not aerodynamic? But, uh, you know, not long after that, the, this, the very same, uh, I, and I mean identical objects were seen in um, Colorado and Texas and Arizona, you know, throughout the sort of the southwestern area. Um, and, you know, I, I saw YouTube videos of that as well. And, uh, and it was identical. And, but those things have been seen for a very long time, right? Um, those Chevron-shaped Oh yeah, that's what that's what um, I mean. Uh, Kenneth Arnold saw Chevron shaped. Hey, the image on the cover of your book is like there's a, sort of a cloudy sky. Mm -hmm. Was that the picture from that night? No, um, but it's similar in a way, isn't it? Just that yeah, kind of... it is. It is similar. The, the cloud. I don't understand. Like the skies here are very interesting, but uh, I, I did want it to have that to leave the reader with that impression that that was like you know that might have been a UFO, even though it was just the moon. <laughs> That's that's the spoiler, right? That's my big spoiler. That's actually the moon, not the UFO. But uh, well, and that's yeah. Even you take a picture of the moon, it's like go take your smartphone out at night and take a picture of the moon. It's gonna look like a dot. Well, you can't get good pictures of like airplanes at night. So like airplanes that are predictable and flying in set patterns, it's very hard to get pictures of those at night. And um, it, it always astounds me, like when people will make this argument, well, you know, if UFOs were real, we'd have better pictures of them. And it's like, why would you have better pictures of something that has no predictive motion, no predictive chronology, just shows up in the sky, does weird stuff and then disappears, you know, often before somebody can even get their camera out. Right. I, I find that that argument that, you know, that skeptical argument to just be like, it's almost embarrassing, yeah. but I think it's, it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be, 
uh, it's just meant to discourage normies away from the topic. Yeah, I think it was Alan Hynek said, um, uh, a thousand pictures is worth a word. <laughs> the, the, the object that, you know, that we got photos of, um, was clearly a structured craft, right? It had, you know, you could see the, the, the V shape and you could see those, those large, what looked to be like lenses or bulbs. And somebody else said they might've been like, that's like the propulsion system might be plasma. Uh, you're speculating, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah uh, but, but, yeah. but, you know, I don't know, it, you know, did, did these things crossing over from some, some other reality that, that might be like even within our own reality, you know, it's like that movie, the midnight special, um, that there's this entirely different world that we can't see that it's, it's around us. And, you know, beside us, is it coming from outer space? Is it coming from, you know, God knows where I, you know, then again, that's why I say, like, I don't even try to, to, to expl make those explanations anymore because then you just end up with like, you know, bad Ashtar command space brothers nonsense, you know, exactly. That to me is just, it's so boring and tedious and just takes all the mystery and allure out of the topic, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, my sense is that like, you know, we're the rats in the maze and somehow there's like a little special like reflective glass on top of the rat maze. In essence, we're the rats in the maze and there's someone, whether it's someone or some energy or our, some higher part of ourselves, who knows what, like that can peer in and see us very clearly, but we cannot see them every once in a while. We'll get a little fleeting glimpse and, and they, they can, in my sense is they can, you know, we're stuck in the arrow of time. They are not. Well, that's what I find so fascinating about people like Jacques Vallée and, and Kiel and Jim Mosley and, you know, any number of other people who've been looking at this phenomenon for a long time. And they just, they're so far beyond nuts and bolts that it's not even like a memory to them anymore. You know, if they just, the, the behaviors of these objects are just, you just can't imagine that it's it's something that we understand as is existing as material as we understand material in our three-dimensional space as we understand that um so i i think that the more you do look at this the, you, the more you just say i i just i can't go for that you know i can't go for the pleiadian beam ships uh explanation anymore <laughs> and you know and then the synchronicities that show up in people's lives right I, I, I use this line a lot, which I think is was super helpful for me to organize my own thoughts around it. There was a chapter where I was, you know, like I really sensed that people who had UFO contact had a lot more synchronicities than most f folks, which I think is true. And I said as much to a friend of mine, and she gave me this look, and she just kind of rolled her eyes, and she said, anyone on a spiritual path will have more synchronicities. And I recognized she was right, you know? So someone, any seeker, any any seeker will have more synchronicities anyone who's really trying to dig into the deep questions and i think the ufo question and the synchronicity question force us to ask those big questions who are we why are we here what does it all mean and you know wrestling with those questions i mean that that like stuff happens well you know at the risk of you know contradicting myself completely but you know the one thing that i would say is that maybe because what we're seeing violates space-time as we understand it that 
you know, there are like ripples. You throw a rock into the middle of the pond, you know, it, the ripples are going to spread out from that event, right? So maybe the synchronicity is part of space-time being disrupted. I agree. That's as good of that's as good as answer as any, yeah. And again, you know, at the risk of trying to impose a quasi scientific I mean, I would never try to like get out like charts and graphs and slide rules and calculators and, and try to work up formula for this. But maybe that's exactly what's happening. It's just that these things are intruders. They're, these things are intruders into our reality and they change it. And, and I think there's a guy who wrote, he was a, he was a college professor and I, I think he might've been like some sort of like fundamentalist Christian or something. And, and I, I read this in a book and I've never been able to find the reference. And I, I start to wonder if I dreamt it, but maybe it was in a Jeff Kripal book or something. I'm not exactly sure, but so somebody had written a book and I think it was in the late eighties, early nineties around there. And he was arguing that, um, you know, that UFOs are highly disruptive and, you know, they're destructive to like social cohesion. And, you know, his, his, I'm not exactly, I'm trying to find this paper. And it seems to me that like, he, he seemed to have like a German kind of surname and was uh, maybe in a Catholic college in the Midwest. I I don't know if this is ringing a bell. If anybody out there knows what I'm talking about, please get in touch with Mike and let me know or let us know. Yeah. But he, you know, he's talking about that that the UFO was basically um, simply by appearing was causing the breakdown of structured and ordered, you know, order in, in society and in culture and you know, in civilization, really, that the, just the presence of these objects, because they represented just a far greater technology and a far greater intelligence than our own, um, posed such a, uh, a challenge to our, our place in the universe and our concept of the place in the universe that it was just breaking us down. Like the, the, the metaphor that I don't, he didn't use this metaphor himself, but if you've ever seen the movie, the uh, Clint Eastwood movie uh, about Charlie Parker Bird, yep. there's, there's a scene when, um, what's the guy's name? Is it David Keith? And, you know, he just hears um, Charlie Parker play and he just throws his saxophone into the river. He's just like, you know, I could never, I could never do that. He just gives up, you know, and probably how a lot of people felt when like British guitarists, when they saw Jimi Hendrix playing, you know, at some tiny little club in London for the first time, they just, they just said, oh, I just give up. I can't compete with that guy, you know? So maybe that, that's, I believe that that's the argument that this guy was making. But, you know, maybe it, it, it operates on a, on a far different um, basis than that. And maybe it isn't a negative thing. Um, you know, maybe in, in the long run, it'll be a positive thing. And we're just so intimidated by this process and, and afraid of it, you know, and afraid of our... Um, the world that we know being unglued, we you know don't understand that um, it will reorganize itself in in a more positive and beneficial um, manner. I mean, we don't know, so you know you don't have to automatically assume the negative consequence, right? Maybe maybe we'll have a positive outcome. I'm not exactly sure, but the point is is that this this writer or this professor was just arguing that you know just by 
existing and being seen that the UFOs just have, you know, a very negative impact on the human psyche. And and this is something that I had written into an earlier draft of the book and I had excised uh, in a later draft. And I think that the UFOs like force us. This is like it's hanging around with the nuts and bolts crowd. They don't ask these questions. You hang around with the, like the new age crowd with the like women in the flowy dresses. They ask these questions like, what does it all mean? You know, what, what, you know, how does, how does this change our concept of reality or of time, of God, of death, of ourselves, of our soul? Like this, this stuff forces you to ask those questions. Oh, well, as does synchronicity and, you know, synchromysticism as, as I would practice it, um, the work that I've been doing with a, with a, with a private group online um, over the past several months, you know, it's just it's becoming so overwhelming and so clearly documentable. You know, it's you know one of the things that I said when I was talking to people about getting this group started is like you know paranormal, all this kind of thing, you know, we, you can never nail it down. You can never prove it. You can never just like say, okay, this is this, this is the way it is, you know, live, live with it or don't. Right. So, you know, I, I think that if you really get heavy into synchromysticism and you sort of find that current, you find that, that mother load, it will change the way that you regard reality because it will just completely challenge any concepts you have about causality. And causality is is the fundamental principle, ultimately, behind naturalism, behind reductionism, behind, you know, this, this mechanistic view of the universe that is instilled into us through school, through media, you know, through the, the intelligentsia, on and on and on. You know, that, that, that causality is really at the, at the core of it when you get down to it. And then when you really do the work and you really find that, that sweet spot with the synchromistic work, you, you understand that the causality is just, it's a consensual illusion, as uh, William Gibson had said about uh, the internet, you know, it's, or, or the, the matrix or however you, you know, he described it in his novels, but it's just like you, you all agree to agree that this is the way things are. And when you really do serious work into synchromysticism and so on, you just realize that that's just another illusion. You know, it really is. It's, it's no different than the Ashtar command people when you get down to it. You know? I agree. Hey, we've gone a little bit over, which is fine. This has been great. I'm just going to read one little quote here that you wrote. This uh, something on your blog, uh, The Secret Sun. It came from just a little over a month ago, a month and three days ago from July 6th. And you started an essay and you wrote this. Something extremely strange is going on. Strange even in the context of 2020. I can't rightly figure out exactly what as yet. I can only poke around the edges of it. But I've seen enough to say with a high degree of confidence that none of what is going on is anything close to normal and that it all stinks very, very strongly of sorcery. Mm. That's true. Yeah, I, I again, I think that there are a lot of people trying to um, kick at the tires. Uh, 
uh, break down the doors. I mean, whatever metaphor or allegory you, you choose. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of people who do things, um, you know, particularly in the sort of shock and awe category um, to affect these changes. And uh, it's, it's something that is going to be a challenge for us, uh, for us all, because I think that there's so much being done by so many people with a lot of influence and power that it, it is starting to uh, affect. Yeah, so yeah, I like whatever. There's all kinds of things going on: riots and pandemics and and political tensions that are off the charts. And and my sense is that I don't think a grand conspiracy created any of that. I would say strongly that there are that are there are power brokers trying to take advantage of this chaos to to serve their needs. Well, I, I, I think it could be both, you know, all of the above. Um, who knows? Again, I'm not going to try to uh, necessarily come up with my unified field theory for it all. But I, I think that there are so many things going on at the same time that I think almost any answer that you would choose to come up with, you could find very compelling evidence for. And at the same time, you could find very compelling evidence against, you know, simultaneously. And you just have to accept the fact that, you know, we're not living in a slide rule reductionist world anymore. It's just, it's gone. And, and, uh, we, we should really fasten our seatbelts for, I, I think a pretty rough ride for the next several years. And I think that the UFO gives us a lesson, you know, gives us a, a metaphor for, you know, I guess, being at peace with the unknown or being at peace with not having all the answers. Well, it's just, it's so funny because you and I have been talking about UFOs for a long time and stuff. And would, did you ever say back in 2009, when you started your blog, did you ever anticipate a day when the, the New York times, the paper of record would be writing all these in-depth articles taking the UFO topic seriously? Did you ever anticipate that that would happen? I didn't. I didn't anticipate that five years ago. I, you know, I, I never cared about it because I had had my own experiences and I, and I had my own proof. So I was, I'm not out to, I'm not out to have someone validate my experience. Like, I'm no, not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying like that you would find this as, as validation. I'm just saying, did you ever think it would happen? W whether or not you care about it or not, but did you just ever did you ever imagine a day that you would see it, you know? I certainly speculated about how it might come about and 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 what the funny thing is it like it like landed with all the all the impact of like someone spilling a a lemon meringue pie on the on the kitchen floor it just kind of went splat and nothing happened. <laughs> well, I I think that in in a lot of ways I think that was part of the plan. You know, I I think that it's been very um very much engineered to get out there with a minimum of, or an absolute minimum of reaction, because I think, you know, you have a lot of very serious people in the permanent government who uh, want to take control of it. And, and you know, getting back to what we were talking about before with uh, all the strange happenings just a month ago, it seems like so long ago, but, uh, you know, Jan Harzen uh, getting arrested uh, the day after Glenn Maxwell was arrested and Glenn Maxwell was arrested on World UFO Day, right? So that to me is is a very interesting thing. And I, and I don't know um, how Harzen was targeted or, you know, what, what the exact details of that were. 
but it's very rare in those instances that just, you know, that this is just the first time or a one-off or, or whatever. So maybe this behavior on his part, and, and I, again, I want to just say, you know, I assume that assume innocence until guilt is proven, but say in that eventuality that, that, that guilt is proven, that maybe this behavior was known and tolerated. And now, you know, it's time to get rid of all the civilian groups and all the freelancers because, you know, the guys with um, medals on their chests are taking control of the whole storyline now. Yeah. And then if you listen very carefully to some interviews that, that uh, Jan Harzan has given over the years as the head of MUFON, he talks about a UFO event with missing time as a boy. And, and if you have even the slightest working knowledge of the UFO contact experience. He's talking about like missing time in the presence of a UFO and that, that, that implies abduction. So this goes right back to your very strange novel where the people who are wrapped up in the, the, the dark twisted stuff at the same time are wrapped up in the uh, intrigue of this stuff. Like many of them are UFO experiencers, UFO abductees. Well, that's something that, uh, that's a plot point that I will give full credit to uh, Hidden Experience and Mike Cleland for inspiring. <laughs> and that was nothing I pulled out of the ether. That was just stuff that I stumbled upon through my work. And that was, it's, honestly, it's a question I ask. I even, I, this is probably going back five or six years ago, six years ago now. I just dialed up Jan Harzan's number and he answered the phone. Uh, and he, when we talked for about 10 minutes, I basically asked him, you know, like, do you think you were an abductee? And he, I'm not going to put words into his mouth, but he sure did kind of imply like, wow, he has considered it very seriously. He's never done any kind of hypnosis that he told me about or anything like that. But he certainly recognizes that, that that's what the story implies. So, hey, how do people get in touch with you? Um, they can go to secretsun.blogspot.com. Or I'm on Twitter as The Secret Sun Speaks. So. Great. And then once again, your site has been, it, it, is, it is so rich with these, with wrestling with these mysteries. Unbelievable questions, very fleeting answers sometimes. But, but the, the questions are much more engaging, as, as you and I both talked about during this conversation. Absolutely. It's been great to connect again after all these years. Yeah, it's been way too long. I, I think we should uh, not let that lapse happen again. Okay. I agree. I know we, yeah, there were a few times we tried to get things together, but everything's trying to get, you know, always getting in the way. So what can you do? Thanks again. Great. This is Mike, and I am chiming in during the editing. I am not sure if you'll hear this, but the neighbor is using a chainsaw right now. So if it's something sounds like a chainsaw in the background, that's exactly the reason why. This was a rather long interview, and I want to use this time right now just to retell that his book is available on Amazon. The title of the book is He Will Live Up in the Sky. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.